end of 2018, President Donald Trump announced something pretty stunning and kind of out of the blue, that the U.S. would be withdrawing its troops who are stationed in Syria. The decision was so controversial that Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis resigned in protest over it. But now the question in 2019 is what does withdrawing from Syria actually mean and what will it do to the balance of power in the country? That's today on Worldly from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hello. Happy New Year, y'all. Happy New Year. We are really excited to be back in 2019 with all of you. We're also super excited to give you this week's Elsewhere. It's the very first installment in a new series that we're doing, four different little sub-segments on music from around the world and what it tells us about different places. But before we get into that, we need to talk about the Syria withdrawal because it's, it's just a huge deal. Alex, can you give us some brief background here to start off? Sure. So it should be known is that we've been doing airstrikes in Syria for, for years going back to the Obama administration. But in late 2015, Obama sent a few hundred troops into Syria, and that's grown into about 2,000 up until now. And the goal under the Obama administration and through the Trump administration was to counter ISIS, to take away its territory in both Syria and Iraq, but we're obviously just sticking on Syria here. And then under Trump, it also took on a new meaning. It was still anti-ISIS, but it was also about countering Iran's influence in Syria. Iran has big stakes in Syria, defending Assad regime, funding and, and arming its proxies, and trying to augment its strategy of having effectively a land bridge all the way to the Mediterranean. And you don't have to take my word for it. The Trump administration has been very clear about its objectives in Syria. Here's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo just last October giving a speech about why the U.S. has troops in Syria. Defeating ISIS, which was once our primary focus, continues to be a top priority. But it will now be joined by two other mutually reinforcing objectives. These include a peaceful and political resolution to the Syrian conflict and the removal of all Iranian and Iranian-backed forces from Syria. Okay, so what did that look like in practice? So the way we kind of did this is the administration under Obama and under Trump talked a lot about working with our partners on the ground, right, in the fight against ISIS and other objectives. And the partners that they usually mean, at least one of the biggest partners, were the Kurds. So the Kurds are this fighting group that have been one of the U.S.'s most effective partners in fighting ISIS, but they also have been fighting Turkey and, to some degree, Iran, because they're trying to get, basically, autonomy, right? So there's this, like, ethnic national group without a state. So they've been trying to kind of establish their own nation-state in this corner pocket of Syria. So we've been working with them to fight ISIS, and kind of in return, the U.S. troops have been providing um, protection, essentially, for the Kurds against these kind of external forces, in particular Turkey, that want to eradicate this nation-state because Turkey doesn't want to lose its kind of Kurdish population to this part of Syria. It's been fighting an insurgency against Kurdish nationalists within Turkey for decades. So Turkey very much does not want to see a Kurdish state right on its border. And, and they've actually attacked the Kurds in right. northern Syria Absolutely. at certain points that are right on their border, right? This right. isn't just like a hypothetical concern. Right. And it was Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan who essentially talked to Trump on the phone and said, hey, we're planning to launch this major military offensive against the Kurds. That phone call seems to have been the main catalyst that convinced Trump to pull U.S. forces because Turkey was essentially saying, look, we're coming. If your troops are still there protecting the Kurds, you guys are going to get wrapped up in this. Turkey is a U.S. ally in NATO. And so Trump was like, all right, screw it. I've been wanting to pull troops out of Syria forever. This is a really good excuse to do so. And apparently on that phone call, he decided to do that. And Erdogan also said that 
Turkey would take care of ISIS and that other countries would take care of ISIS. So this is a very good appeal to Trump's entire worldview, which was, oh, good, other countries are taking responsibility. The U.S. can finally leave and not do anything about this. Right. America first, basically. Basically. That's a good way to put it. Some so you, you, should, you should sell that. So that means that we're out. Now, we right. don't know when. We don't know in what way the withdrawal will go. We don't know how many American troops might stay for an indefinite period of time while the overall withdrawal is taking place. But we're gone, according to Trump, if he doesn't change his mind in the next— whenever he changes his mind. So what does that mean for the Kurds now? Is Turkey going to launch its offensive? Are they going to do something to stop that? So it looks like Turkey right now has paused the offensive. It looks like, I mean, they could do it at any time. They've done it before. But for right now, it's a bit on hold. The, the bigger question is, you know, what does this mean for the geopolitics of the region? And so the, the main points here are that Russia and Iran, two countries that have way more presence in Syria than the U.S. does. They both back the Assad regime. And who both back the Assad regime are going to have more control in Syria. The Assad regime will eventually, I mean, it was already winning, if not won, the civil war, will also recoup some of the territory in the Northeast, in part by making a deal with the Kurds. And so there is debate about how much influence the U.S. really had, but it did seem that the 2,000 U.S. troops did deter some of this from happening. Uh, Now we're going kind of full hog. Well, like, the logic's really clear, right? So if you're the Kurds in northern Syria, you have a choice between aligning with the U.S. and Assad. You can't pick both because the U.S. has declared its objective in Syria to be countering Assad in Iran. So— They decide to align with the U.S., who's already allied with them. And not only that, probably provides better protection against Turkey, given that they're both NATO allies and Turkey doesn't want to kill American soldiers. Now America is leaving, right? And the Kurds, well, their protection strategy is screwed and they need to find some kind of alternative. Right. I mean, part of the deal was like, we will protect you and you will help us fight ISIS rather than fighting ISIS and the Assad regime. You know, we want you to do that too. They really wanted to do that. We were like, what if you just like focused a lot on ISIS and we'll protect you so that you don't have to really fight Assad or Turkey. And this goes back to, you know, we talked about Jim Mattis resigning in protest. He wasn't resigning in protest, just kind of like a vague general pulling out of Syria. He specifically in his resignation letter, which is pretty fiery and you can read it up on Vox.com, He specifically talked about, you know, abandoning our partners and allies on the ground. And he's referring to the Kurds. I mean, we essentially promised them that we would defend them. And then we just straight up, like, Turkey calls up Trump and says, hey, I'm going (laughs) to launch a major offensive against the Kurds. And we're like, deuces, we're out. So that really pissed off Mattis. And not just, like, at a personal level, but, like, at an ideological level, right? So it, it became this, like, American credibility, right, and standing up for our partners and allies, and this was kind of the final straw. So for the Kurds, it was like, well, shit, you guys just screwed us. Thanks a lot, U.S. And so now it's like, well, what are their options, right? Well, on December 28th, they showed us exactly what they would do, which is by sending an invitation to Assad's troops to enter Manbij, a Kurdish-controlled city, explicitly to deter a Turkish attack. Right. So what we have here is an American ally, the Kurds, Aligning with an American enemy, Assad and his Iranian backers, to protect the Kurds against another American ally, the Turks. Uh, This is not what America wants. It's allies at each other's throats, and the American presence was explicitly, according to Pompeo, designed to prevent that and align everybody against Assad and Iran, but oops. So this brings up an important question, which is, was the decision to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria uh, a good one? Right. I I feel like we've been outlining the case against 
for most of this episode, which is that you're abandoning American allies and harming the geopolitical situation from an American point of view in Syria. But that's not the only way to think about this. The way I feel about this is that, look, we needed to get out of Syria eventually. We were never really committed there anyway. Obama essentially lost Syria, right? Obama made the decision not to heavily intervene in the Syrian civil war. Like you said earlier, Alex, Assad has largely won that civil war, though we've paid, you know, a lot of lip service to countering Iran and the Assad regime. In practice, it's actually been really focused. The U.S. effort has been really focused on almost explicitly just fighting ISIS. ISIS has largely been defeated. There are still a remnant presence, which is very concerning. I think, in general, pulling out of Syria eventually is a good idea. I think, for me, the way that we did it, the way that we made this announcement abruptly without apparently thinking through how that withdrawal would actually go, talking to allies, making sure everybody was on board with how this was going to go. That was the clusterfuck. It could have been done a lot better. I think now we're seeing the Trump administration kind of backtracking, going, well, we're not sure how long it's going to take. So that that's my take on this. Yeah, I mean, the rollout, to use the correct word, <laughs> right. was, a, was a clusterfuck. I mean, it, I talked to senior officials from across the government. No one knew what was happening, what was next. So it was very clear that this was as impulsive as Trump being on the phone call saying we're withdrawing. Right. Just to add really quickly, Brett McGurk, who is the U.S. envoy to the fight against ISIS, right? He literally like a few days, a week before Trump made this announcement, had basically been on camera talking to reporters saying it would be, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it would be uh, foolish to pull out and to, you know, announce that we're withdrawing. We have a lot of work to do. Of course, we're not pulling out. And then Trump pulls out and McGurk is like, well, shit. He and resigned, he too. And he resigned. resigned too. Exactly. <laughs> I have two kind of thoughts on this. The first being, as shitty as it is telling the Kurds that we would defend them and then getting out, it was always true that the U.S.-Kurdish alliance was one of convenience, not of long-term strategic value in the Middle East, in the sense that the U.S. and the Kurds allied to defeat ISIS and possibly Assad, but that's But not of, really. But not really. <laughs> right. Uh, and the notion that the U.S. is going to keep 2,000 troops indefinitely or some amount of troops indefinitely in Syria to defend them without congressional authorization, without really American approval, is is folly. Like, that was never going to be the case. Yeah, that, that American approval point, that really, that really gets me, right? Because the last two administrations have just sent troops into Syria because they can. There are cited legal justifications. There are some arguments, but— Right, ISIS are, is kind of a descendant of al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11. We have the war authorization for that, right? The the authorization for use of military force. But they're to, shady. To, it's yeah. a really yeah. shady it's a argument. <laughs> but also no one's going to stop anyone—no no, no right. one's going to stop the president from sending troops. But anyone. that's the problem, yeah, right, is that the president shouldn't be able to just keep troops— wherever, whenever, under the pretext of fighting a terrorist group that is not even remotely related to 9-11, which is what the legal right. architecture is, uh, is supposed to cover here. And Trump, this is obviously done in a terrible fashion, but there needed to be some pullback on the president and the executive and the military staying in countries forever without any clear metrics or clear rationale or explanation as right. to how they would like get if, out. If we're going to have— U.S. troops, right? We're Americans, right? If we're going to have American soldiers and, you know, airmen and et cetera, uh, Marines, on the ground defending a future Kurdish state, then that argument needs to be put to the American people, right? Like, 
that needs to be explained to Congress and why it's worth American lives. And maybe it is, right? Like, I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but that's a debate that has never been had, right? It's been all under the guise of fighting ISIS, not defending this group of people that most Americans probably aren't familiar with. And and that's a good point. Like, we need to have that debate, and we didn't. And so the fact that Trump is pulling out is kind of a good thing in that sense, in the sense that, like, well, I didn't have authorization to defend the Kurds, so I probably shouldn't keep doing that. So even with all that, this brings me to point two, which is, if your goal was to confront Iran, and Trump has been very anti and and hawkish on Iran since the campaign— you don't do this move. Correct. Right? Because then you give Iran, as we've discussed before, all of this space and all this ability to help Assad to infiltrate more in Syria and even threaten allies like, uh, you know, Turkey to some extent and Uh, even Israel, Israel, for example. (laughs) Right. So I don't get, I get this from the we can't be in Syria forever angle. I don't get it from a Trump strategy angle. No, or from an an anti-Iran strategy angle, right? I think to me, It has to do with the fact that I don't think Trump actually gives a shit about Iran as a country, as a threat. I think he gives a shit about the Iran deal and the fact that Obama did that deal and he's really mad about it. It's possible. And he thinks it's a bad deal for various reasons, some of which are valid, some of which are insane. And I think that he feels like—again, I don't know what he actually thinks. This is my read, right? I think that, you know, for Trump— sanctions, pressuring Iran in that kind of way, in like an economic and like political way, is the way to counter and slamming the Iran deal and maybe pushing for a better deal is really his focus, not U.S. troops on the ground. I don't think he has a really clear grasp of like all of the political pressure points and military pressure points you can put on Iran. That's such a kind way of putting it. Because right. it's, I don't think he has a grasp of it at all, Right, personally. but that's what I think. I think for him, Iran means the Iran deal, not like Hezbollah and, you know, Iranian-backed forces in Syria threatening Israel. And I think that goes to why we saw Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu call up Trump and basically go like, look, can you maybe, you know, slow roll this pullout of U.S. troops from Syria because we're really worried that this is going to embolden Iran right on our fucking border, right? And so I think now that's, again, like while we're seeing Trump say, like, well, you know, it's going to be a slow withdrawal. We don't really know what time. We're not putting a timeline. And remember, this is really important. Remember, Trump slammed Obama and basically blamed him for creating ISIS because Obama announced the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Iraq back when he was president. And Trump slammed him over and over and said, you don't announce things like that. Like, that's a strategic blunder. You don't do that. You don't announce to your enemies that you're going to be leaving because then they can just sit back and regroup and wait till you're gone. And then Trump becomes president. And when it becomes time for him to make the decisions, he does the same exact thing. Look, I just, I don't think that there's a borne out strategy that was going on here, right? right? Like this week, Trump called Syria a place of sand and death. He just doesn't care, right? right? And what this illustrates is a disconnect between the people in the administration, like Secretary of State Pompeo, National Security Advisor John Bolton, and some others who are committed anti-Iran hawks. Exactly. Who saw the U.S.'s goal in Syria as being this kind of broad strategic containment. And the president who, again, Jen, as you Illustrated had, had said lots of nasty things about Iran, but does not have this broader ideological or strategic commitment to fighting Iran across the Middle East. Just, you know, doesn't like them, but also doesn't like being in Syria. It's like a collection of impulses yeah. and, and positions taken for a combination of political convenience and, and, and personal instinct or spite or disdain 
rather than a broader thought-out strategic framework, which is how we get this decision to withdraw announced with no planning, no prep work, and in a way that alienated key members of his own administration. Yeah, and I think that really illustrates the underlying core problem with Trump's foreign policy in general is that it's not driven by strategic, thought-out plans. It's driven by Trump's gut check. And this is what happens. We see that on the ground. So we're going to take a break now. And when we come back, we have a really exciting new elsewhere to present for you guys about music in South Korea. The news today seems really grim. And it sometimes focuses more on problems than on solutions. I'm Dylan Matthews, the host of Future Perfect, a show about possible solutions. Solutions that are a little weird and a little wild, but worth considering. What will people say if I treat this person who murdered someone's loved one kindly? Simply tell the Border Patrol to take the day off. Tell them to take the year off. Listen to Future Perfect on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. So this week on Elsewhere, we're starting something new and exciting. Every week this month, we're going to debut a different Elsewhere segment focusing on music from around the world and what that music tells us about the place where it comes from. So today we're going to start with a song from South Korean pop star Suga. It tells us a lot about mental health and the state of South Korean society. First, let's hear a little bit of this. Now, he's a K-pop star, but the song sounds a little bit more like Linkin Park than anything else. Fair warning. So what he's saying here is, it was around 18 when my social phobia began. Sometimes I'm afraid of myself thanks to my self-hatred. Other times in the songs, he says things like, the memories I want to erase from that day at the concert, I was afraid of people, so I hid in the bathroom and stared at myself. It's very clear what he's talking about here. It's, it's a personal, emotional, and mental breakdown. Sometimes he talks about going to therapy with his parents. And this isn't normal for K-pop, right, Alex? Not even close. Um, in fact, South Korean music industry has usually been very sanitized and, and censored. And on top of that, this kind of music, which is exported around the world, is supposed to be mostly kind of happy and, and or even if it's sad it's supposed to kind of have a message that's universal and so anything that kind of gets personal to the pop star or on personal issues that's usually kind of taken out of these kinds of songs right like it's like fluffy like kind of romance but like really kind of candy poppy like it's very chaste it's definitely not usually things like I was afraid of people so I hid in the bathroom and stared at myself what's really interesting about this is it's not just Suga by himself the band that he's in BTS it's one of the most popular K-pop acts in the world it's huge it's just massive even in, in the US now and they also talk a lot about mental health social alienation this is just really breaking the mold for a K-pop band not just in a solo act but also the main act yeah like imagine the Backstreet Boys are in sync or something like that talking about this like that's how big this is they're they're just a massive act worldwide and songs like this are well received and actually like celebrated in South Korea and there's a reason for that right South Korea actually has the 10th highest suicide rate in the entire world and the second in the OECD after Lithuania uh, now if you if you really go into the numbers, there's the suicide rate is distributed surprisingly around ages. Like there's a lot among the elderly, but it's the top cause of death for South Koreans aged 10 to 39. That's a large age range. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And the number one cause, you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. The leading cause of death. Wow. 
it's not clear why there's been a lot of research as to what's going on, but no one, no one's really sure. The point rather is that South Korea has a mental health crisis. And it's also the case that in popular culture and in public discourse, most of the conversation surrounding that mental health crisis has been suppressed, right? It's rare to hear someone as prominent as Suga talking about it. Right. And that's why these songs are so interesting because, you know, they're hugely popular. And if you listen to BTS's music, there are other songs like this one, you know, about the singer's mental health. But there are also songs about things like the immense pressure that South Korean students face in school. It's not scientific, but the extreme popularity of the band definitely suggests that this message is resonating with people at like a really basic level. Or at least they're using their popularity to bring up really important issues that South Korean society needs to talk about. That's right, right. And so K-pop, which is often stereotyped as being dumb and shallow and shiny, is becoming a vehicle for social expression, for bringing elements of South Korean society that have been pushed to the margins but are really important to the fore. You know, music like this, it's catchy. You may not be a big fan of Suga's style. That's up to you. I liked it personally. But it's important to, to wrestle with because it helps you understand what's going on in another country and another culture. Next week, we're going to talk again about music, this time about a Turkish band that is arguably affiliated with a militant group and has been repressed by the government. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton. I want to thank all of you, our loyal listeners, and to remind you to rate, subscribe, review. And now uh, we'll say goodbye for the week. <laughs>